This is a Federal News Network podcast. Fixed price contract. It's a common strategy for the government. Contractors need to understand that every word in that three-word phrase is there for a reason. Inflation, COVID, supply chain, if they drive up your costs, tough luck. That point was reinforced in a recent lawsuit. As we hear from Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Zach Prince. Zach, good to have you back. Always a pleasure. I don't know why contractors sometimes don't understand this, but it doesn't really matter what drives up the cost. Tell us about this case. Yeah, that's right, Tom. You know, we've talked about this before. As inflation is ongoing, supply chain struggles are continuing. It's something worth reiterating, and it's something that's going to keep coming up. Ace Electronic Defense Systems out of the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals involved a contractor performing under a fixed price delivery order for various parts associated with cruise missiles. The contractor what is a pretty familiar fact pattern at this point, had a substantial increase in the prices it was being charged by one of its vendors for certain materials. Supposedly, the price increase was due to COVID-19 issues, and the contractor couldn't source the parts from anybody else. So they had huge losses they were facing under this contract. As they told the government, cost increases put substantial financial stresses on them, unlike anything they've ever experienced. So they've got, and contractors in general have, a huge incentive to try to figure out a way to get more money under fixed price contracts. The problem is there really isn't a way. So they sued anyway to try to get that rule bent in some way? They did. In a somewhat novel argument, they pointed to a memo that the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment put out in July 2020. That memo said that while the general rule is contractors under fixed price contracts have the risk of cost increases, contracting officers have discretion to modify contracts using the changes clause to reflect changes of the government's needs. What that doesn't say, I think a careful reader notes, is that there's any reason or any basis for the government to increase a contract price simply because the contractor is facing some sort of cost increase. Right. In this case, the government's need did not change. It was the same order for the same quantity of cruise missiles. And so, therefore, There was no change under that memorandum from the secretary. That's right. And and that's the same sort of language that we saw in the May and September 2022 memoranda from Defense Pricing and Contracting. They said, remember, these are fixed price contracts. Despite supply chain issues, despite inflation issues, there's no basis for the contracting officer to change the price just because of cost increases. But as the September memo pointed out, if there's some consideration that is, a change in government needs or something the contractor's given up, then there might be some basis for relief. But it's not just on its own. So the contractor here either intentionally misread the memo or accidentally, but tried to use this as the basis to get some recovery. And just to be clear, the contracting officer then has no discretion in that circumstance of a fixed price contract under the FAR to just grant the relief because he or she understands the contractor could go out of business or is facing losses. That's right. The only basis for a contractor to recover in those circumstances are to employ this extraordinary contractual relief mechanism under public law 85804. That is really rarely granted. I've seen a few cases, but you need to demonstrate to the government and not the contracting officer, this is to the secretary level, that this is essential to the national defense and that you're going to go belly up and imperil some major programs uh, if they don't grant you relief. We don't see that happen often. Yeah, In the case of Ace Electronics Defense Systems, they were just making a subsystem within the overall missile. They're not the prime contractor for these missiles, correct? 
That's right. And more than that, they didn't even demonstrate in the board's view the real impact that they would have. They made conclusory statements. One of the footnotes in the board's decision says, you know, we have no real basis to evaluate the impact on the contractor. It didn't matter because the law wouldn't have entitled them to relief anyway, but they didn't really do the full job here. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a procurement attorney at Smith Pactor McWhorter. And so it's probably worth reviewing under which circumstances inflation, supply chain pressures. I mean, it's all inflation. If prices go up, it doesn't really matter what the cause is, federal spending or sunspots or COVID. But what are the circumstances now currently under which contractors can get relief for higher costs from inflation? Well, Contractors should be doing a better job now of trying to negotiate economic price adjustment clauses. And those can be devilishly difficult to negotiate on the front end. The factors that you pick that might entitle you to a price adjustment can be hard to establish and figuring out what the right metrics are to peg you know, your entitlement to can be difficult. But that's the only way that you're going to get a price increase in a fixed price contract. A cost plus contract, that's a different matter. Absolutely. But then you have a whole other slew of problems of ensuring that your accounting systems are correct, tracking the FAR Part 31 allowability principles, potentially compliance with the cost accounting standards. And as anybody who spends a lot of time in the cost plus world knows, you might be subject to challenges five or six years down the line for direct costs that you know the people who incurred them and the reasons you incurred them, the evidence just isn't available anymore. Right. So you really, and we talked about that not too long ago. Also, you really need to have your systems and your procedures geared and aligned toward cost plus before you decide to enter that phase of business. Absolutely. And if you don't, it's a huge risk. Missiles are not the type of thing that are generally bought under task orders under government-wide acquisition contracts. We're seeing the emerging generation of GWACs come out with order level pricing negotiations, and they're not negotiated as part of being on the GWAC. But that's not really anything close to what's happening in the world of missiles and military platforms. Not usually, no. (laughs) With the volumes we're using them at and sending them around the world, maybe they should be. But But then that's a discussion for another day. So what happened then? It was dismissed, and that's the end of it. There's no appeal for ACE Electronics? They could appeal, but if I were advising them, I would strongly tell them not to. I think this whole case was throwing good money after bad for them. It was a low dollar value claim to begin with. Uh, they were only seeking an adjustment of 113000 And that's really not enough money at stake to justify an appeal. It's hardly enough money at stake to justify a claim, particularly when the law is very much not on your side. What happens to a contractor that says, I just can't deliver, therefore, because I can't get the parts or the parts are too expensive? That has risks for the next round of contracts too, doesn't it? Absolutely does. If a contractor defaults, which that would be, uh, they can be terminated for default. They have bad past performance ratings. They could be suspended or debarred from government contracting. So the ramifications are quite significant. And other than fixed price or cost plus for this type of commodity, is there any other mechanism under the FAR that the government might agree to that would be more attractive to the contractor to anticipate changes in costs for components? A fixed price contract with an economic price adjustment clause is the only real way forward that I can think of for contractors. The alternative is building in a lot of contingency. And you just have to be upfront with the government about what assumptions you're putting into your price. If those come true, 
then you know you might break even. If they don't, is uh, inflation is lower, you might have a windfall. And of course, the inverse is true too. You could still take a loss. But why would they not have built in that adjustment clause in the first place? Is that something that might have disqualified them from consideration or maybe made them lose the bid? Until recently, it was really rare to see those clauses. I've seen them maybe once or twice ever in you know, my experience. Now they're starting to show up fairly frequently. I think the government views an economic price adjustment clause not only as very difficult to administer, but as somewhat negating the benefits of the government of a fixed price contract. It's almost a cost plus contract in a fixed contract's clothing. <laughs> that, that's right. Although there are limits. You can only get an increase up to 10 percent for the most part. The government can get a decrease with an unlimited floor. So, you know, if your assumptions go way down, which doesn't seem likely now, the government gets to get the benefit of that, too. Right. It's like being on an elevator hanging by a thread, I guess. Fair analogy. All right. Zach Prince is a procurement attorney at Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.